0: Yes. And on German, keeps the E-I means spite. It does. <laughs> but, well, uh, actually, it means
1: um, it means woodpecker in German. Really? Yeah, it's Middle English, yeah.
0: So you're a woodpecker? I am. Yeah, and you're a tree. I'm a tree. <laughs> right. Or trees. So does that mean this is a good podcast, or I'm going to be attacked I don't know. for <laughs> <feet> throughout <laughs> this? I'm slightly terrified now. Um, okay, dokey Let, let's kick it off. In the
1: depth of the forest and all the wood, the pride of the greenwood there. Oh, his branches, the ivy, her mantle through when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.
0: Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees a Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From environmentalists and potters mad about songbirds and otters. There's a pun every single I, I got the first one. That's a bad one. Uh, I'm going to talk to people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I've come to the Midlands, to Grantham, a place best known to me as somewhere where I once drank my body weight in slow gin, but far more importantly is home to the Woodland Trust and to their CEO, Rebecca Spate. Becky started her career working for the National Trust, initially as the property manager of the traumatizingly beautiful Stourhead Estate, before eventually becoming the NT's director for the Midlands. And in 2014, she took over the Woodland Trust, the UK's largest woodland conservation charity. Becky, hello. Hello. And welcome to Trees of Crowd.
1: Oh, welcome here, yes, to our fantastic office here in Grantham. It's kind of on an industrial estate, which you wouldn't expect. Well, it's past the bowling alley behind the gym,
0: <laughs> and then this huge sort of wooden monolith rises up
1: out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It's spectacular. It's a gorgeous office. It was built just about kind of six or seven years ago. Okay. Um, very good architects. So I was nothing to do with it, so I can't take any... Credit, but it's fantastic, and of course, it's got lots of wood in it everywhere. Yeah,
0: uh, we're, we're in a room named after a tree. I should have hawthorn, it. Hawthorn. hawthorn,
1: which is just coming into leaf everywhere. Are you noticing it's, it as you drive around? It's just
0: everywhere yeah. today. I yeah, yeah. Sort of, I've just been out of the country, so coming back, you just everything's in blossom, everything's budding. Yeah, yeah. It's just...
1: it's, I mean, this time of year, I mean, the East Midlands, you know, is it has been trashed in many areas as mm-hmm. a piece of countryside. But I always think this time of year when, you know, well, we've had the blackthorn flowers and now the hawthorn leaves coming out and you get that kind of green fuzz along the hedges. And even this bit of countryside, which is not fantastic in many ways, mm-hmm. just starts to look really good. We're well, driving yeah. up
0: the motorway, I mean, I've, I've been bad and been in a car all morning. Yeah. Um, you do start looking out the, 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 the hedgerows on the sides yeah. and the trees and the fields and you start to get a feeling that this... There is there is a definite diversity going on. And yeah. I was wondering whether or not the Woodland Trust was actively trying to make the approach to Grantham <laughs> greener, and more florid than anywhere else. Literally.
1: It would be fantastic. We, I mean, we do, we work with the council locally and we've just done a big piece of work to, there's a fantastic old oak tree in Grantham called the Grantham Oak. Okay. So we've just been working with the council to get that better protected have because to talk to the, Mark the,
0: about that one. yeah
1: it's a wonderful tree actually and we also kind of try and influence obviously sort of new development that goes on to try and make that as green as possible we're not mm-hmm. always successful but we will try hard and you know we're an important presence for the town actually and vice versa sure. obviously a lot of our employees in this building in particular live in Grantham. so that relationship's important how many
0: people work for the woodland trust here
1: Uh, There's just around about 200 here, and we have 500 staff in total, so the rest are scattered across the UK. That's substantial. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've been supporting the Woodland Trust as just a money-giving Thank you very much. My pleasure. Love every second of it. Oh, well, Um, it really matters, so thank you. But I've been doing it for about two decades now, and I've always just imagined it's you in a hut in a forest.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, do you know, for a long time, it wasn't far off that. So the reason we're in Grantham is that the first ever... Uh, employee of the Woodland Trust came out of uh, he was a marketing man for John Player cigarettes in Nottingham of all things.
0: Okay,
1: um, but he came he joined our founder Kenneth Watkins. Um, as a marketing person and this is in the 70s yeah this is the early 70s so and Kenneth said to him you need to find us at our first office and it needs to be cheap <laughs> and Grantham was cheaper than Nottingham so he found somewhere in Grantham and and we've been here ever since and uh, it's it's actually it's a great place for us to be in terms of getting across the UK and getting out you know you're it's, right in the heart of the country yeah 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 I I mean, so it the,
0: works the only things I knew about Grantham as my introduction said was we filmed an episode of Victoria here did you was, Fueled by slow gin. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and that Margaret Thatcher was born here. She was. She was. Yeah. Do we admit to that?
1: Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's one of the things the town's known for.
0: Is is there a legacy of the her environmental footprint? Obviously, we know about her industrial one. We're going to go off piste a bit. <laughs> already. And so politics. <laughs> Um, what was her environmental legacy? I, I don't really know off top
1: Ooh, of my head. As you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head. I mean, there is a traditional sort of conservative party approach to the environment, which is that they see themselves as the party of the countryside. And I think particularly in terms of
0: well, heritage, yeah,
1: heritage of the countryside and kind of keeping, keeping the environment in a, in a good state, they, mm-hmm. they, they would kind of support that very strongly. There's a conservative environment network who, sure. who work very hard on that kind of stuff. And we would work with them on that you <laughs> Um, so there is a kind of there's a a long line of kind of looking after the countryside I think in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party as well that they tend to kind of go more around kind of you know sort of social justice access to the countryside Mm -hmm. climate change in particular obviously it's big so you know we kind of I I like to think we're a really broad church you know trees and woods are a broad church and as long as you love trees and woods you're part of the gang I'm
0: so incredibly impressed by how (laughs) you balance mentioning (laughs) both the Conservative and the Labour Party I've been sitting there in the car on the way up and this will, this will probably come out in a couple of months time mm. and Theresa May is still currently in office yeah who knows who knows knows will for will how happen. long
1: who knows for how long I know
0: so I won't push you on which part yeah. you'd rather be in office to help support the work of the Woodland Trust um, before we go into the Woodland Trust mm. what it is why it does it yeah. and how brilliant it is at doing it let's just talk a bit about you if that's alright mm. um, where are you from originally Dorset oh okay yeah
1: so I grew up in Dorset my father still lives down there whereabouts uh, just north of Blamford yeah, so the middle, sure. and I still have a, I have a kind of huge sort of um, affinity to that landscape. Actually, it's stunning. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I grew
0: th- up around there as well. Did so you? Ah, down in Corfe. So okay,
1: okay. Oh right, there. okay. Yeah, well, I like to feel that if you kind of drop me into a landscape, and it was a Dorset landscape, and I opened my eyes, I would know it was a Dorset oh, landscape. Definitely. You know, it's Perbeck and Hardy. Country yeah, is- just gorgeous. And so, and I had a very, I grew up in a little village and, you know, had a, had what I think then was a really normal childhood. But now when I talk to people, I realise it might not have been, mm-hmm. but, you know, very kind of wild roaming and kind of, you know, out in the countryside. And we were always either camping or kind of, you know, fishing or sailing boats or whatever. Sure. There was lots of that going on. And, and I kind of, you know, I carry that with me. Obviously, that's what I love doing you now as presume well. that's what everybody does. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I was walking... I can't remember whether it's Pentridge or Trantridge. One of them's the test version of the real version. Let's say Pentridge. (laughs) I was walking from Martin Down across to Pentridge um, about a year and a half ago, um, learning lines for a play I was doing, and came across a father, mother, daughter and son foraging. And I was like, well, obviously it's Dorset. That's what we all do. (laughs) um and you you forget that that's unfortunately not the world that everybody grows up into
1: no no, and you know, and and also it's changed since I was a a child. I mean, I can remember you know kind of I would my best friend sort of lived outside the village, so I'd walk up this sort of gentle hill out out of the village on these sort of big chalk. Verges, mm-hmm. and you would just get these clouds of blue butterflies kind of rising up. And you know, and, and it's the, the village where I grew up is on a, a kind of a Roman crossroads. And so, going up all of those, kind of they were just kind of rough tracks. Yeah. you would just kind of see so much, you know, wildlife. And, 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 and I just feel that has really changed since I was a kid.
0: There are so many Roman roads around there. Mm. I don't know whether that's why we sort of, growing up in that area, take in the beauty so much, because you don't need to turn the car quite so often. Yeah. You can actually look out the window without the worry of actually bumping into someone coming around the other side of the corner.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You say that you think it's changed. What do you think has changed it? Just I, time? just.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean certainly when I was growing up a number of things have happened so one is kind of social change mm-hmm. so you know when I was growing up there were um, lots of the the older lads in the village worked on farms mm-hmm. and so you know there was a sense in which farming was really bound into the village's life and there were there were farms that, there was one farm right in the centre of the village and all that has changed so very few people now work on the land as we know in and, you know, certainly that farm was sold for, you know, to be developed into a kind of a a, a small kind of housing development. I won't
0: ask you a real question, but we're talking mm. the 1970s?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and so the, there's been obviously social change. So I think a lot of people now who live in villages are less connected to the, to the land. Mm-hmm and then you know obviously there's been huge environmental change because as farming has intensified and become kind of more of an industrial kind of approach the landscape has changed so you've lost hedgerows you've lost a lot of woods um, and you've lost that sense of kind of connectivity for wildlife often I think from a landscape so I I think it's it's one of those things where I think you know you, you will you can drive into the countryside today or go into the countryside and think well this all looks very green and all looks very good and but of course what you're often looking at is for wildlife it's pretty much a desert yeah. you know and so that that has been a huge shift I think and that t- and that that's happened really in the last I feel like I feel very personally it's happened in my in my lifespan it's happened in the last 50 years um very rapidly um and we need to do something about it
0: so is I mean that's obviously where you are now mm. what was it that made you come down this path then did you did you have the affinity with the countryside? I mean, wh- wh- what happened? You're you're a child in Dorset. Yeah. Where growing do you up, go to school? Uh, where do you go to university? What yeah. happened?
1: Yeah, so I um I I did have this this affinity I think with it and and loved kind of that that kind of lifestyle growing up, but then I went I went off and I did um I did an English degree at Durham and so lovely got to know got to, got, to, <laughs> got to know the south the, the northeast rather quite well, and then I and then through by hook or by crook I, I ended up in Scotland. And I ended up, actually, as a management consultant, finally, working in London. So I kind of did various eclectic kind of um, journey. But I'd always had this thing that I thought I wanted to do something that I thought was really worthwhile so sure. although management consultancy was fantastic it was really buzzy I was working with lots of people my age you know it was a, a great time to be in that business it was this was sort of the 90s I um I just had this thing that I, I needed to do something I felt was really worthwhile and, and for me kind of growing shareholder value which is really what you're doing at the end of the day didn't feel like that was it sure. So I decided I would try and um try out a few things and I and I went and I did some work with the National Trust at a big estate called Kingston Lacey in Dorset, oh, I which Kingston, you all know. Lacey.
0: My stepmother's been making a needlepoint version <laughs> of it for the last forty years, <laughs> I think.
1: I mean it's an amazing place. And I was lucky enough that I I kind of I just literally phoned up the then estate manager and said, Look, I've got some time off work. Can I come and help you with something? If, if in exchange, you will show me what your job is like. So sure. we kind of did this swap, and he was an like extraordinary a work ex- character. Just a work experience yeah, he was program. an extraordinary character, and I just kind of loved what I saw of it. And he, I always remember, he said to me. We'd had some conversation with a you know a, um, a tenant of one of the cottages, and he said to me, "You know, I, I go to bed and I think, you know, did I do the right thing?" And I thought, actually, I want to go to bed thinking, "Did I do the? I want my work to matter, sure. you know." And um, and so, uh, I was just lucky enough that um, in that sort of period of time, um, the job at Stourhead came up, sure. and and I was lucky again that I think. The man who was to become my boss was ready to take a punt on somebody who knew nothing about land, nothing about art history, Mm -hmm. but kind of could bring a a bit of kind of, I suppose, commercial nous and a sense of wanting to kind of make a difference. And he took me on and, and that's what kind of enabled me to transfer into this sector. Sure. Have and you I, heard of Stourhead before? Yeah, I'd been as a child. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a really—you were so right to say it was traumatizingly beautiful. I mean, it's, the grounds it's a, are like nothing else. It's an amazing, amazing place, and um, and I learned so much there. You know, I had to learn really fast, and I learned a lot. Um, and and I think since then, I've been on a bit of a trajectory where I've wanted to kind of move more and more to where I feel the real battle lines are and I think the real battle lines are around the environment and are around our countryside and are around nature sure. so I, I mean although there are still battles to be fought around built heritage and history and all that sort of stuff it's much more protected I think than the than world. the natural world and so that's that's what's ended up bringing me here I think
0: fantastic yeah. so I guess then it's a journey through the National Trust it's it's Stourhead it's then you moved up to the Midlands after yep. that
1: yeah so I came up to the Midlands to look after the portfolio in the East Midlands for the mm. National Trust and then across the Midlands, which again was fantastic. So that includes huge bits of the Peak District. It yeah. includes um, fantastic um, houses like Belton and uh, like Bel- Hardwick Hall. Belton
0: House, I know because they film Moondial there. Do yes, you know? they did. That was a TV show yeah. which will age me, but it just terrified me it was it was first time i'd encountered consumption yeah and first time I, it was it's terrifying um so, so many of the children's tv shows of the 1980s were things that scared me yes um i i think all children's tv shows should be terrifying
1: yes yeah <laughs> i it's, it's interesting i remember very clearly a, a tv show which you're probably too young to remember called uh i think it was called the changes and okay. it was really spooky and it was about kind of power through um great big power lines affecting people and how they lived and it was just it was really scary. Well, that does happen, though, doesn't it? <laughs> there was just this sense. I think. I think. I think. Children's TV's become tamer.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I'm well. I'm talking to a presenter of a CBBS oh, TV yeah, show tomorrow, should, should so I'll, I'll talk to Jess and see what she says. And saying.
1: I, I also remember as a kid growing up. In a rural community, going to the the local primary school, we were so we were shown in the nineteen seventies a truly terrifying film about the dangers of farm life, uh-huh. you know, and, and kind of kids drowning in slurry pits and that kind of thing, and it was very graphic, and we all had huge nightmares after it. I mean, it was terrifying, you know.
0: It's, it's probably the fundamental problem with Netflix and <laughs> streaming things is we get to choose what we watch. Uh, those information TV shows yes. as a child growing up were like, even at university when regular programming run out, you just turn on things which would tell you to be wary of horse in the road at night time and you're like no we're not, we're not told that anymore. <laughs> we're probably, that's probably why we're making so many mistakes as yeah, is a modern know. generation. Yeah, yeah. So, so so much of your life has been mm. working for the National Trust and for the Woodland Trust mm. now which are two of probably the most important uh, organisations of my childhood. Mm. My family rigidly enforced culture, mm. uh, our heritage yeah. and the natural world. Whilst you were working with the National Trust did you have much overlap with the Woodland Trust?
1: Some. So um, just occasionally we would, I mean, I remember, for example, um, one of the properties I was responsible for was Belton, just Mm -hmm. down the road here. And I remember the Woodland Trust kind of campaigning to me Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, you need to look after those veteran trees more. Uh, than you are doing at the moment, so I remember that kind of thing, and just being aware that the woodland trust was out there um, and I knew the the then chief executive actually a little bit sue so I, I kind of knew about it through her as well, so I was aware of it definitely sure.
0: do you try and overlap them more now
1: yeah i'm really one of the things i've i 've really tried to get us to do is to kind of work in partnership where we can because uh-huh. you know The kind of issues we're facing into are enormous in terms of kind of climate change and you know what's happening to the wider environment and the only way I think in which those can be fixed is through joint working so um, we do a lot with the with the National Trust um, from the kind of local so we're now we're in the middle of a project to try and join up some of our woodlands which um, are contiguous with Belton the Belton estate so we're Mm -hmm. working with them directly on that and then we've we've acquired places so we've jointly acquired Fingal Woods for example down in Devon which is close to Castle Drogo, sure, one sure. of the National Trust properties. Um so we we we're in that to, that one together. And then, you know, we will work, um, we will help and uh, offer advice on, on trees and woodland management, for example. And, and we'll work with the National Trust and the RSPB and the Wildlife Trusts sure. to really look across the whole landscape and say, how can we achieve more together? Because I think so many of our supporters don't support just one organisation. No, yeah. You know, they want to support a, 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 a better natural environment. And so it makes absolute sense to our supporters, I think, that we try and do as much of that as we can together.
0: There's something I've come across through other philanthropic ends of mine is that often charities do fight at odds with each other. Mm. Uh, a lung charity might be at odds with um, yeah. a heart charity, but because they both, or a cancer charity, because yeah. you can get lung cancer and cancer will exist, and then you, and this it suddenly becomes a, a quest for funding and mm. support to get legislation put through or medical mm. furtherance. And I think you're completely right in saying that those who care about the natural world don't just like birds. No. They understand that trees are important as well, and yeah. that, etc. Cetera, et cetera, And
1: what a waste of our energy and our time to be kind of fighting each other. Good grief, yeah. you know. We've got enough to do out there without kind of squabbling amongst ourselves.
0: So, 2014, mm. you took over the Woodland Trust. Mm. Was it just because the job came up, or was it something about you and your affinity to nature that maybe was always dragging you back in this direction?
1: Yeah, so I think three things happened. I think... I was approached about the job at the right time, which always helps. Mm -hmm. I was on this trajectory, as I've said, where I felt that, you know, what really mattered was the natural world and that therefore I probably needed to be spending more of my time working particularly in that area. So I think that was kind of going on in my head. Mm -hmm. And then I'd also done this thing where um, I had taken six weeks in 2012 and I'd gone over to America to some of the national parks in the southwest of the US because I really wanted to go and see them and I would I'd read a lot of Wendell Berry and that kind of stuff and I just Southwest would be So that's Yosemite Yosemite um, Joshua Tree. Yeah yeah all those all that corner really. And I'd had a great trip there where I'd just gone off on my own and I camped a lot in some of these um, national parks and I just I can remember I was at the time I was reading and I always talk about this I was reading this book by Tony Juniper. Called um, what I think it's called. What has nature ever done for us?
0: I've literally had that on my bedside table for the last two weeks. It's a I good took book. It to the Maldives <laughs> with me. It's a he, good book. He's on my list of people I'd like to get on the podcast. He's right at the top.
1: Yeah, well, um, he's 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 a great thinker, and I think. So I was reading that. I was reading some Wendell Berry. I was reading all sorts of things, and I just it. I, it felt a bit like a revelation. Mm-hmm. Like I can remember camping out one night under this massive cottonwood tree. Um, in Zion National Park. And at at dusk, all the bats kind of flew out of the tree and went off to kind of do their bat-like business. (laughs) And I I just remember just sitting by my campfire and thinking, I I just think I need to be more in this world. I need to be working more to kind of make sure that this continues. And you can't go to the national parks in the US without hearing about John Muir and thinking about all of that movement to kind of try and protect those national parks, which are, of course, now being threatened again by Trump and his... his... It was one
0: of the things that America did better than us was the foundation of its huge and stunning national parks
1: and 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 it's different we I mean we have good national parks Mm -hmm. here in the UK but they're very different so there aren't those huge tracts of wilderness which is what you get of course in the US but you know I, I think that was a bit of a revelatory sort of trip for me and I came back I think thinking okay I need to do something about this. I need to change what I'm doing. And although I absolutely love the National Trust and I mm-hmm. still love it. It's a great organisation. Yes. It was a time when I just wanted to be, you know, batting more for a team that I felt really needed help in sure. the in the battle they were fighting.
0: Have you read um uh, the Overstory by Richard Powers? Oh,
1: it's such a great book. Have you read it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very rapidly climbing up my like must-read books for anyone who's ever cared about anything ever. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I I mean I really hoped it was going to win the Booker actually mm-hmm. and then it it didn't. But um I, it's a great book and I think it really captures the way that that trees, you know, just just play in a different way for different people for different reasons yeah. it really captures that well and tells those very kind of um human stories about people's relationships with them yeah. so I love it I, 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 those
0: introductory chapters one yeah. by one where you meet the key cast yes. and all of this yeah. and you don't quite know where it's going it's, yeah. I've I've never been so excited to start a new chapter as I yes. have with that
1: yeah and there's that uh, well actually are you still reading it have you finished it uh,
0: uh, I've finished it but our readers might not but we can cut okay. this out <laughs> <specifically>. <laughs>
1: but there was, a, there was a moment where I just found myself absolutely sobbing my heart out and it was just, um, yeah...
0: See, I'm thinking that could be one of maybe four different <laughs> key points.
1: Yeah, so I won't, I won't give anything more away. Um, but the other great book... Can you do that, it
0: in mime? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the other great book that was um, that came out, I think, prior to that one, but it's a, a similar hefty tome, was um, Annie Proulx's Barkskins. Have you read that? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I think is is, is sort of um, underrated, actually, because I think that is an amazing book as well, and I love her writing anyway. But um, I'll
0: have to compile a Trees of Crowd recommended reading list.
1: You should, you should, because there are some great books out there there and it's i mean you know that the the
0: word for book comes from the word for beach yeah i do indeed yeah but i just think
1: the connection between i
0: think i even said that (laughs) i've done too many of these now i'm going to start repeating myself with
1: anecdotes
0: i think it was robert mcfarlane who introduced me to that yeah yeah anyone who doesn't follow robert mcfarlane's twitter feed is missing out on on yeah the only thing that makes the internet not an abhorrence uh, (laughs) to the natural world is robert mcfarlane
1: um yeah and obviously he's another quite great kind of nature writer I, I just think that the kind of there is a there's a real sort of connection between writers and and trees and woods actually. So we have a Do you lot think of that's our a pacing. Thing? I think I think well, I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations. Love them. <laughs> I think writers think very deeply about the world that they find themselves in and uh-huh. how they're going to convey that. And I think so. I think that that inevitably leads them often to think about sort of you know the natural world and their relationship with bits of the natural sure. world. I think there was a pacing thing as well. And I guess, you know, certainly good writers write about stuff that really matters. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they often do end up writing about either the natural world or aspects of it, I think. And, uh, you know, some of our, some of our great supporters are, are really good writers, which thrills me. As someone who did an English degree originally, you know, I Enjoying love that the club, connection. Like so many of us are sitting here with English degrees <laughs> yeah. going, what, what should we have done Going with out that? and trying no. to be useful in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Please forgive us from doing that humanities subject. Yeah, so. Um, so yes, so the Woodland Trust. Yes. What are you?
1: Uh, we're a charity mm-hmm. set up nearly 50 years ago now. So it'll be our 50th in 2022.
0: Do you have a large initiative with that in mind?
1: We're just starting to cogitate. Okay. Yeah, uh, about doing something you know really big that year. But we were set up really by by Kenneth Watkins and some friends of his who lived down in Devon and were, this was 1972, so they were increasingly concerned about what was happening to particularly small native woodlands. Mm-hmm. You know, they could see that there were kind of, often conifers had been put in on top to kind of, we were really worried about being short of timber sure. after the First World War, so start the Forestry Commission. And, you know, small ancient woodlands were sometimes being grubbed Is up. Is that how
0: the Forestry Commission started?
1: Uh, well, it was started immediately after the First World War, yeah, mm. because we were concerned about that we didn't have enough timber. You know so you know that that that's what drove the whole thing. So it's their centenary this year, actually.
0: Um,
1: I did not know that that's yeah.
0: fascinating. So many of so many forest links come from from war of sorts. I mean, I'm from the New Forest traditionally, originally, traditionally, yeah, the tradition of oaks. Um, and again, that's a forest that was built over uh, an incoming uh, armed forces wanting to populate in a new country. So, yeah, it's
1: 1066, it's so. You know, 1919, there were huge concerns about things like pit props, that we wouldn't have enough timber to, for pit props and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. So, you know, Kenneth and his friends were worried about what was happening to native woodlands. And they could, I think they could also sense that, you know, farming was changing. In fact, Kenneth had made um, some of his money from kind of, you know, big farm machinery. So mm-hmm. farming was changing. And and so they started, uh, they talked to the what was the, the precursor then to the Devon Wildlife Trust about whether they wanted to take on more of these small woodlands. Sure. And Devon Wildlife Trust, for various reasons, said it couldn't, and so Kenneth thought, "Right, we're going to have to do it ourselves." And they started the Woodland Trust, literally from his kitchen table in in Devon.
0: I hope that um, was an oak tree. One likes to think so. Uh, if it was a four mic sort of metal <laughs> thing, you're kind of like, "Oh no!"
1: But he was—he was. Um, I never—I never met him. Um, he sadly died before I, I arrived here. But um, he was. Um, I think he was a great combination of a sort of an idealist. You know, he always thought the Woodland Trust should be UK-wide, for example. You know, Mm. he always kind of had a big vision for it. But he was also a great pragmatist. So he liked getting things done. He liked making things happen. He would, you know, stop and see a wood that he thought was under threat and he would get it bought. Sure. You know, so uh, I like to think we kind of carry those two bits in our DNA really still. And now, of course, we're, you know, we're a UK-wide charity. We've got... Over twenty six thousand hectares of our own kind of estate, which mm-hmm. is you know ranges from you know huge tracts of land in Scotland to kind of not quite five trees on a roundabout, but not far <laughs> off, you know, and you know, and we do three things really, which is we we really um, fight to protect ancient woodland, yeah, you know, and that's that's only about two percent of our land cover now in the UK, very fragmented, very broken up by all the changes we've talked about. What would
0: you say the definition of ancient woodland is?
1: So it is woodland that um, you can trace back to the earliest maps. So in England, for example, that's about 1600. If it's shown as a wood on a map in 1600 uh, and it's still a wood today, then the chances are that it's always been wooded. Sure. Um, and, And that means that that kind of ecosystem of that piece of land has always been a woodland ecosystem it's never been plowed it's never been fertilized and that means that it's 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 developed over that long period of time so not or interestingly the trees might not be that old mm-hmm. because it's been kind of continuously wooded and, Used, and, and, coppiced, yeah absolutely absolutely but it's been that intact kind of ecosystem so that's why it's so important really And we've lost so much of it. We've lost probably half of it just in the last 50 years. So Mm -hmm. it's really a a fragmented and shrinking, um, shrinking part of our ecosystem. And it's really it's the richest habitat we have on land for wildlife because it just kind of works for all sorts of wildlife.
0: So how much of, of I mean, I guess the argument is if you have trees, then everything else looks after itself. Mm. I mean, how much of the Woodland Trust sort of pushes the argument of of the wee beasties living in the bark and the, the moss? Oh, totally. And the like, yeah, the-
1: yeah. Every bit of that ecosystem really, really matters, and we're only finding out some of it. So, you know, if you think about um, these mycorrhizal fungi that exist under the ground mm-hmm. and kind of are this sort of what well, it's been described as a a wood wide web, but this sure. idea that you know there there are kind of various sort of communications happening, you know, in a wood and and, and, you know, we, we don't know that much about the kind of fungi in those ancient woodland soils. And, you know, these are things that could really kind of help humanity into the future as well as being really important in terms of wildlife.
0: Do you, Does the Woodland Trust spend a certain amount of its money scientifically investigating?
1: So we do do some research. Um, we don't do much directly ourselves, but we will kind of, for example, fund a PhD or, sure. or a piece of research. And, and ancient woodland soils is one of the things we're really mm-hmm. interested in at the moment. Um, the book um, The
0: Secret Life of Trees is something a friend yes. of mine's been buying religiously for people. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. I think he was. on And it
1: often, it often gets knocked actually for being kind of slightly anthropomorphic, whatever that word is. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, but actually, I think it's um, he's he's found a way of telling us a, a, quite a complicated scientific story mm-hmm. in a way that is accessible to the kind of lay lay reader.
0: There, there's an argument that I'm coming up against time and time again about. The natural world and whether the layman or the scientific mm. man can lay ownership over mm. it. And the fact is that neither are no. really allowed to. No. Um, you need to have an enthusiasm which does not need to be scientifically informed. And I think that that book trod quite neatly yes. that journey between the yes. two. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so ancient woodlands. Yes. Uh, so we
1: fight to protect them. So we own some ourselves. Mm. We own some fantastic bits of ancient woodland. And if you kind of, if you yourself think about, if you if you imagine in your mind's eye a really beautiful wood with a kind of, you know, a complicated understory and some big trees and some younger trees Mm -hmm. and probably fantastic kind of flora, you know, like bluebells and things. That's probably a piece of ancient woodland. It's highly likely it is. And that's one of the ways in which you would identify it as a piece of ancient woodland is to look at what's growing there. So we do that. And then we also um, uh, would fight kind of planning applications, for example, that threaten ancient woodland. And um, we've just managed to get a change in the English planning system in the last year, which we've been fighting for for years and years and years, to get ancient woodland as protected as our best-built heritage. Mm and So that's been an enormous change, which is great. I was tweeting
0: furiously about that at the time. Thank
1: you, thank (laughs) you. No, we were just absolutely delighted with that. I mean, it it doesn't protect it from kind of big infrastructure projects, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like HS2
0: are still really threatening it. Well, I mean, I guess this is where we sort of lean into the politics Mm. of things. HS2 is, for those who don't know, it's a high-speed rail link that's Mm. trying to reconnect London to the north of the country and make the country more profitable. Critics of it will suggest that it's just destroying a huge amount of the environment Mm. and also it will just draw more work down Mm. to London, which Mm. is the opposite of what it's hoping to do. Also, in terms of building projects, I was talking to the CEO of the Devon Wildlife Trust Mm. the other day and he was saying, Harry uh, Harry Barton was saying, regulations over where you can build new houses which Mm. are needed are more piratical than they ever used Mm. to be. I guess. So uh, how much does the Woodland Trust get involved in trying to quash the ambitions of an economically focused government? Uh, a small question.
1: Yes, I would say we're not interested in quashing economic ambition but we are very interested in seeing that economic ambition delivered in a way that is of benefit for the environment as well. Mm -hmm. So I I think there are all sorts of big projects going on at the moment. You know, the Oxford-Cambridge arc would be another one where if we have a bit more vision and a bit more determination to do the right thing we can actually be of benefit to the environment as well as to the economy. Now, sometimes you can't completely get that to work. But I think often you can. And, you know, the way in which we do our housing development, for example, there are lots of opportunities, I think, now mm-hmm. to be doing this the right way. And we, we live on a crowded island. You know, we will always have to make these sorts of compromises i mean you know we talked about the um the u.s national parks and how different they are in these huge tracts of wilderness i mean we don't have that here quite a large
0: country there to play with
1: yeah and 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 i and so we will always have to have these conversations and make these compromises but i think we can do better and that's one of the that's one of the things we're absolutely determined to see
0: so i mean you obviously petition the government Mm. and get support from the royal family you Mm. were out with prince harry the other day Do you ever go to the government with a a solution, a suggestion, a financial implication like you can do this and this is the reward that you would see?
1: Well, I think that's where some of the natural capital type thinking, which is in Tony Juniper's book, has been beneficial, actually. So, again, there's a kind of a a slightly nerdy kind of argument that goes on in the, I think, in the, in the kind of environmental sector about is natural capital a good th- thing or a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, you can end up trying to put a monetary value on something that actually is just intrinsically of value, yeah. you know. So that's, that's where people kind of tend to go into their trenches slightly. But I do think that natural capital thinking has helped us have better conversations with government and with people who are interested in economic development in order to kind of weigh up some of those decisions in a much more holistic way. So it has definitely been a benefit, I have found, in those conversations.
0: One of the things that has fascinated me is the carbon markets of the world Mm. at the moment, which is a fantastic way to motivate a government to mm. try and change the world as long as it's a closed circuit and mm. there's not a leak and yeah. all the CO2 is being supposedly repurposed or recycled mm. but is actually just being dumped.
1: Yeah. I, I think one of one of the interesting areas that's going to come in more and more to the fore, I think, is, is kind of climate change and, and biodiversity. So we know we're facing into massive kind of climate change issues at the moment. We also know that we're seeing kind of Potentially, you know, a mass extinction event in terms of the biodiversity of our species and and our planet. And I think the thing we've got to do is we've got to combine those two things and mm-hmm. get the answers right. Because I think there's a danger that we will kind of rush down a solutions to climate change that actually could be negative for biodiversity in some ways. So, you know, we've just got to kind of combine those two things together.
0: So that's the headline. Mm what what's the content of that article? What are the little things that you think we can definitely do now to try and head towards that grand goal?
1: So I think, for example... Um you could make an argument about farming and, and climate change, and say we need to become more efficient. We need to become as efficient as we possibly can, which means kind of bigger fe- fields. It probably means animals on concrete feedlots. It means all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that does nothing for biodiversity. If anything, it ch- it, it pushes it in, in the wrong direction. Sure. Um, and equally, I think you could say um, there's an argument where people say we just need to plant more trees. You know, that will help us deal with climate change. But actually, if you if what you end up doing is planting, for example, mono cultures mm-hmm. you know then then that's not going to do anything for biodiversity and where we'll continue towards our mass extinction event sure. and we know that that you know not only do we have to keep the you know the climate of the planet suitable for human habitation but we also need biodiversity not just for its intrinsic value but for our own benefit as well so we need to find solutions that combine both those things so
0: does that mean that you don't necessarily entirely approve of rewilding and things like that
1: uh no i'm a massive fan of rewilding i think you know i think it's a solution that can definitely work and it works really quickly i think it's one of the things that makes me really optimistic actually at the moment is how fast you know rewilding can take hold and can benefit you know biodiversity and lock up more carbon into sure. into kind of um vegetation and, and and the ground but i i i don't think it's the only answer mm-hmm. so i think there's, there's a we're always tempted as human beings i think to get into this kind of polar argument where you know there's one solution or there's kind of a magic bullet it's not going to be no. like that we're going to need to kind of do natural regeneration which is the kind of rewilding approach and we're going to need to plant trees sure. but let's do it all knowing that it needs to benefit us and to benefit us in terms of carbon but
0: also in terms of biodiversity because we need both so what are the current projects that the woodland trust is working on
1: oh lots <laughs> <laughs> what okay what are you what is your what yeah. is your
0: favorite one? Oh uh, no that's not fair I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> who's your favorite child? <laughs>
1: um so what are we doing at the moment so we've just we've just raised the money thank you to Lots and lots of supporters um, to acquire Ben Shieldig up in Torridon in Scotland, which is our first ever mountain and is uh, (laughs) really exciting. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Um, If you've never been, you have to get up there and it's got some fantastic remnant Caledonian pine on it. Mm -hmm. So we think it might be almost the most westerly bit of that that exists still. It's very fragmented as a... Uh, a habitat, mm-hmm. um, and then we've also got um, some wonderful kind of birch and oak. Some of this kind of temp, you call it a temperate rainforest. So it exists down the west side of the UK. Uh-huh. This fantastic, very wet kind of temperate forest often oak wood and so it's got some of that as well but we think that we by kind of allowing natural regeneration managing for example the deer population up there and also some kind of judicious planting we can actually protect that much better and get that kind of landscape restored so that's very exciting who did you buy it off uh we bought it from a landowner up there um who wanted to sell off part of his estate so we acquired it that way And uh, so that's been a a big acquisition at the start of this
0: year. Do you get bequeathals as well?
1: We do, yes. Yeah, people do... um uh, very generously leave us sometimes woodland sometimes land mm-hmm. and also we get left legacies in in wills which sure. are really important in, in order to enable our work as well so people are fantastic actually it was
0: always the thing i loved about beatrix potter was she basically went here's the lake district here's the national trust you you can have it all yeah which i thought was incredible yeah. okay so you've got a bit of scotland now a yeah. mountain
1: yeah which so that's really exciting because we're really interested in that west coast piece of scotland in particular and we Already own somewhere called Loch Arkaig, which is further down okay. that coast. Um, so it's lovely to have these two big pieces. How much land do you own? Uh, we own just over twenty six thousand hectares. Yeah, across the UK. That's
0: quite a lot of land.
1: It is. It is. Um, and it's it's fantastic because it means that not only are we an organisation that can talk about woods and trees but we can also do it ourselves and uh-huh. i think that gives huge power to kind of you know our opinion in a way because we're, we're trying to practice sure. what we preach um and i think that's that's really important so that's been a, a, a big exciting thing this year we're also um involved in uh something called the northern forest mm-hmm. which is um an attempt it's kind of crazily big <laughs> to um plant 50 million trees across, running, yeah, running roughly between Liverpool across to Hull, kind of along that M62 corridor. And we just, the the tree cover in that area is about 7%, which is really low. So
0: why is it so low?
1: uh, For various reasons, development, you know, all sorts of kind of reasons have meant that it's got very low in that particular area. Um, and you know in England it's about 11% so it's low for England and then the European average is about 38% so it's really low Um, so we want to kind of help um, not only sort of restore what ancient woodland there is still left but also um, create more woodland in a kind of mosaic I suppose of of woods and trees across that area Mm -hmm. Um, sort of everything from kind of some commercial timber production through to you know schools planting trees and woods in their own backyard so That's a massive project, and we're doing that with the um, Community Forest Partnership, which exists across that area. And the government has given us £5.7 million seed funding to get that underway. Um, So that's a huge project, which we're just getting kind of going on. And then we're also, um, something else exciting we're doing at the moment is creating a new forest of youth (laughs) uh, between Nottingham and Derby.
0: Please tell me you're spelling that Y-E-W hyphen T-H. (laughs)
1: Um, which is just going to be fantastic. So it's we're going to work with all the young people in that area who want to be involved to actually design this new forest, okay. and then and then creators as well. Um, and that's going to be really exciting, I think. And and we have while we've done kind of we've done ad hoc work with young people in the past, lots of schools work, lots mm-hmm. of people come out and plant with us. It's the first time we've really engaged in that way. With a community, and am really focused on that generation. I think, and and they're a generation who are, I think, really switched on about climate change. You know, really passionate about wanting to do something mm-hmm. um, to to help um, that situation. So it's going to be really interesting.
0: I can't wait to see the current 16 year olds run this world. <laughs> um, listening to Greta Thunberg and all of that, <laughs> and the school strikes that just happened. As far as environmentally focused as my school got, I think was some fictional characters called the Bumble Snouts who told us about CFCs and the ozone <laughs> yeah. layer and that was about as informed we were at the time. Yes. But, um, there's no excuse now to not really try and change things around.
1: No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I often think about my, my nephew. I haven't got kids myself, but I've got a very beloved nephew who's 17. Um, and he's he he knows this is a massive deal yeah. and that he's kind of, and, you know, he's got to, he and his generation are going to have to kind of um, do something about this. And, uh um, I just think, you know, more power to their elbow and we've just got to help them every step of the way because yeah. um, it's a huge deal for the
0: world. I feel like we could keep talking for another half hour or so. <laughs> so there's there's three things that I ask everyone who comes on to the podcast. Right. So this is like their the hot No pre-warning. Question. No <laughs> pre-warning at all, um, but you should find it fine. Firstly, uh, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be?
1: I think I would be walking... Somewhere on the west coast of Scotland in one of those temperate temperate rainforests, actually. I mean, they are glorious, glorious things. Mm-hmm. You do get a sense, there's a fantastic one actually in Wales called Hlenagh, which we we own. And you get a sense, it's like kind of stepping into Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. It's still full of these fantastic bryophytes, you know, lichens, it, and, and often very steep kind of river gorges and things. And it is, you really feel like, you are kind of touching something a bit primeval. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting.
0: There's nothing quite like a big fern (laughs) and like a huge expanse of moss to make you feel like you're sort of treading somewhere you shouldn't be.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very, very special places. And I'd have to be on my own. I insist on being on my own.
0: (laughs) Oh, I I, completely take for granted. Everyone gets to go off on this walk on their own just to take it all in. It's you and nature and nobody else is there. yeah except for the, maybe the presenter of Desert Island Disc bring you a Bible. <laughs> and I'd probably,
1: and actually, I'd probably like, I'd like to have, I w- can I embroider no, this? Could, I would like do. to um, find a pool in the river deep enough to swim in, and I'd go for a swim as well, because I do love swimming in rivers and lakes.
0: and Wild things. swimming? Or?
1: I think it's just swimming, isn't it? Come on, it's become, I love the way, you know, we have to kind of you know, package everything and sell it back Wild to ourselves, swimming. don't we? <laughs> it's Free just diving. swimming. It's just, it's just swimming.
0: Swim. <laughs> I watched an amazing, um short documentary, I think it was on Vimeo I found it, yeah. of a of a man who had decided to wild swim in a certain number of places around the country and he just the visuals of these beautiful, sort of trout laden lakes and sort of coastlines was just
1: it's very special, I think, mm. you know, to, to, and to swim down the middle of a river that's kind of on its way somewhere and to feel you're part of that kind of, um, that journey. It's very, it's a great thing.
0: I've got an image of the Woodland Trust under your tenure, <laughs> deliberately buying up. <laughs> yes. swathes of forest that have secret little lagoons Absolutely. hidden in the middle of it. Absolutely. Well, has anyone seen our CEO? <laughs> oh, she's gone for a bathe. Yes. <laughs> uh, question two. Yeah. Um, should we colonise the moon?
1: Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, one, we would mess it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've have you ever seen images of the amount of debris there is in space already. I mean, it's just horrifying. And that's that's us kind of just, you know, jettisoning off various, various things we no longer need.
0: Is there so, anything more terrifying than seeing all that debris is seeing the designs for machines to try and collect yeah, that debris. Yeah.
1: So I, I kind of, I don't trust us to do it. I suppose, and um, and the other thing is, I think we have to focus on on this planet. You know, mm. this planet is an incredible thing, and you only have to look at some of those images that were taken back from you know those moon landings of the planet, and were so kind of uh, revelatory. I think, you know, it, it's an amazingly special place, and so we've just got to take better care of this one. Let's not assume that we can trash this one. And go somewhere else.
0: Do you think if we did find somewhere else with a whole new ecosystem, we we're into a pure fantasy world here, um, do you think we would be able to stop ourselves destroying it? Do you think we've learnt enough lessons yet? No. Do you think it's got to get a lot worse?
1: I think it is going to get worse, but I think we, but I have hope as well. Uh-huh. I think, you know, I think I have hope because of things we've talked about, like that younger generation. Um, the power of rewilding and and natural regeneration. So there are things that give me hope, but I I think it is going to get
0: worse too. Without wanting to say the B word, because it might not be relevant Mm. when this gets broadcast, will the Woodland Trust's ethos get harder if we leave the EU, when we leave the EU? Uh,
1: We're part of a coalition called Greener UK, which came together. It's 14 environmental organisations, and we came together to try and push for the greenest possible Brexit. So Mm -hmm. we've been lobbying hard, you know, and and you've seen things like the new agriculture bill come forward and the environment bill and so on. So it depends what happens. I mean, I think both of those bills have some quite good foundations in them. But we still need to find the money to make some of that stuff happen, and that's a question mark right now. Mm -hmm. We need to be wary, I think, of... Perhaps, you know, an economic downturn and therefore a huge push for growth at, at all costs suddenly coming back onto the onto the cards. You know, there's a lot that we need to kind of get right going forward. So I, I think, you know, our position is a good position right now it may need to harden you know Mm -hmm. if if we see that kind of you know the environment is coming under more threat or we're just not taking the right decisions about some of that future challenge that i talked about yeah then our position will need to harden and i think you know there will need to be a coalition of the willing to make that shift really
0: how much of your funding does come from from people just charitable donations or how much is from the government
1: oh um we don't get a huge amount of funding from the government other than for kind of standard woodland planting grants, for example, which, you know, anybody creating woodland has, has access to. Mm-hmm. I would say um, about a third of our income comes from individuals. So there's either members who are supporting us. Hello. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> um, or from kind of individual donations. About a third of our income comes from legacy. So legacies oh, okay. are really important to us. And I think that's often people kind of thinking, actually, I want to sort of, you know leave the world in a in a good place or yeah. help the world get to a better place and then about a third comes from other sources like corporate partnerships um grant income and so on sure. so it's about a third a third a third okay.
0: yeah uh, third question then um if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be
1: i think right now it would be well we don't know for sure but we suspect there's there's a big extinction going on in the insect world um, there's been a lot of kind of publicity about that mm-hmm. based on some of the research that's been done in Germany and elsewhere. That's a
0: terrifying number, like... 40 percent of yeah they measured they basically
1: measured biomass from from collection points and found that it really dropped a lot and um so i suspect there are a lot of insects that are going extinct that we're kind of not even aware of and and they are so crucial as a kind of a a foundation stone for kind of that sort of you know whole um species cascade really and i i think i would want to bring them all back because we really need them
0: sure any particular kind of earwig (laughs) Ha <laughs> I I'm not
1: enough. I mean, do you know, I'm not good enough. I'm ashamed to say I'm not good enough on my insects to be able to name a species. But um, well, you're
0: more than welcome to join me in, a sweeping... in Norfolk tomorrow and come and speak to <laughs> an insect specialist. Yes, exactly.
1: You will tell me off. Yeah. But it's a sweeping, a sweeping kind of generalisation. But I think that's what we need to be really focused on that because we really need those insects, not just for the kind of the role they play in the ecosystem, but mm-hmm. because of what they do in terms of pollination for us as well. Oh, incredible! Yeah,
0: and possible future food sources as well. Yeah, who knows? Although, I i eaten insects I don't <laughs> want to do it again <laughs> Becky thank you very much for talking to me much appreciated Pleasure. Um, if people want to know more about the Woodland Trust they can go to the website which is
1: www.woodlandtrust.org.uk
0: and you're on Twitter you're yes. on Instagram and yes. you personally are on Twitter as yes, well yes
1: I am As WT Becky yep
0: wonderful great stuff I hope people will flock to support the Woodland Trust in there coppiced forest sizes
1: that would be fantastic (laughs) because it's going to take us all so
0: that would be fantastic brilliant Thank thank you very much and that was the fabulous becky spate two very exciting events have unfolded since we recorded this interview back in march firstly becky asked me if i would like to become an ambassador for the woodland trust something that i was very happy to accept So expect a little more tree-based content if you follow me on Twitter, and perhaps this episode might move you to become a member of this amazing organisation, or even to plant a tree. Secondly, Becky has just announced that she will soon be moving across to work for the RSPB. Sad news for trees, great news for birds, and proof, if yet more proof were needed, that flora and fauna are indeed interconnected. As usual, head on over to Treesacrowd.fm for my blog and you will also find there a list of the books and authors which Becky mentioned in this episode. So until next time, I've been David Oakes and this is Trees Crowd. Oh,